What if you weren't sure who you really are? You didn't really understand, well, why does my life matter? What if you didn't really know what your purpose actually was? Well, you'd probably just be a teenager, right? Okay. That's pretty normal. What else is new? But what if it's more serious than that? What if the voices around you have confused you, they continue to bombard you with messages claiming that you're actually someone other than who you are? That you need to fit in this way and, and follow these patterns. They tell you, in fact, you cannot be happy unless you take on this alternative identity. Something other than who you really are. These, these influential voices, they dispute, they contradict what you've been told about your core identity. Your father has said, you are my son. But they contradict that. They say, no, no, that's not really who you are. You might think I'm referring to the confusion that's in our culture today about identity and who someone really is. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm actually referring to the confusion among Christians concerning who we really are. Our identity as new creations in Christ and what difference does that make? What changes about us? How do we live in this new identity? You see, as I told the kids just a few minutes ago, we have been made new, and so we can, and we should, live in this new that we have been made. It'd be good to remind us at this point, before we get further into this topic and how it is that we live new, it'd be good just to remind us, we had a little bit of a break, to uh, where have we been so far in this letter from God to his church? Think of Ephesians that way. This is a letter from God to his church. And where we've been so far, we, we, we were reminded here that God chose us together in Christ, for adoption as his own children, redeemed by Christ's death in our place. We have forgiveness from our sins, from our trespasses, our violations against God's will. We are recipients of his grace. We now know God's will. We've believed in Jesus and thus have been sealed by God's Holy Spirit for a future that has been guaranteed for us. Though we were dead in our own sin, we were separated from God. We were following wicked spiritual evil that holds sway over this world and culture around us. And yet God made us alive together in Christ. By grace we have been saved. He raised us up in Jesus. He gave us a new identity and a new standing. He, put us, he, he removed us from the kingdom of darkness. He has transferred us into the king of, kingdom of the son of his love. We, have a, uh, we are under a new authority. We don't answer to that old any longer. He has made us who believe in Jesus members together in one body. Those who were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. He has broken down hostility between us. He's joined us together into a new humanity, a new shared identity together. Reconciling us together with one another, reconciling us together with God in new right relationship. 
He's made us together members of one body, and as that one body together, we walk in a new life by a new power, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead, so that we can, as we've been called to do, walk worthy of this glorious calling with which we've been called. We are in this new identity of God's redeemed, made righteous, and so in compassionate humility toward one another, carefully guarding this unity that God has given us. We, as one people of God, live out this new life that he's given us in the midst of a broken world. That, that, that's basically Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, just a little bit into the beginning of chapter 4, that, that sort of catches us up to where we are now. We're in the middle of chapter 4, from verse 17 following. We're going to confront this case of mistaken identity. We're going to be reminded of of who we were as compared, as contrasted to who we are now. We are not both and. We were and we are. We have been made new so that we can and should live new. We have been made new. In this, in, the, in this first half, we're going to look at verses 17 through 24. In verses 17 through 24, we're going to see the need of being made new. We're going to see the needs that we perceive and feel, how, we, how humanity tries to fill those needs, and we're easily caught up in that, and yet that this is no longer our way. We have been made new. Look from verse 17. I'll read verses 17 to, to 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as truth is in Jesus to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to have put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We have been made new. There's a need that he says the Gentiles think of the nations. All the rest of the world, that's a term that the Ephesian church would identify with because most of them were part of that, and it included being away from God, among the world. And yet God has now made you his own. But when you were there, he says, I I, I testify in the Lord that you no longer walk as they. You're not they. You're not there. And this is not merely... Paul's inclination, this is the word of the Lord as I testify to you in the Lord. There's a futility that they had experienced. Walking as the nations do in the futility of their minds. That word futility is like an itch that you can't quite get at. You see, we're made for life in relationship with God, and there can't be a satisfaction for us, a fulfillment for us, when we're separated from that relationship. And yet we know something's missing. We know there's a hole, and we try to fill it some way, another way. As Blaise Pascal wrote, Blaise, this one's for you. There was once in man a true happiness, 
of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. Think of a footprint in the sand of what was once there but is now gone, is missing. There's nothing but the absence of it. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help that he cannot find in those things that are there. Though none can help, since this infinite need can only be filled by God himself. It is as Augustine described. And Augustine had looked for this fulfillment in all kinds of places before he found it in Christ. And Augustine says he was like a, a, a third century Solomon. He says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. There's a need in humanity. And we try to fill it in all the wrong places. We're darkened in our understanding. We become callous. We, we give ourselves up to all kinds of things, greedy to practice the fulfillment of our senses. That callousness suggested, in, that callousness in verses, verse 19, it suggests a, a desensitizing. It's kind of like from, from use and abuse. The, the skin, even, in an area that has been abused and mistreated and worn too hard becomes rough and less sensitive, right? Did you know your brain does that too? This is one of, the, one of the things about addiction. It's why addictive practices, all kinds of addictive behaviors, it's why they become addictive. Because there's an, an initial behavior uh, triggers brain chemistry that causes connections to be made and fire, and they're out of that brain chemistry. I'm not going to go into all the details of it, but there's a pleasurable feeling that comes out of that. And you like that. It's, it's that high that drugs create that people enjoy, and yet it's, it's a way beyond the normal and natural. And what is happening is your brain has been triggered to not merely create those connections, but to bombard those connections. And so what happens in those brain connections is as they get bombarded, as they get overrun, they get damaged. They get calloused. And it takes more the next time, and a little more the next time. And initially, it's kind of subtle, but if you look from the beginning to continuing an addictive behavior to over here, you can see the downward spiral, because it takes more and more, and yet it still doesn't satisfy. It doesn't fulfill. It said greedy in is, is, a, is an unsatisfiable desire. They hunger, they long for. That word greed is often associated with covetousness, a desire for things, a being greedy for things, but here it's used in a different way. Here it's used in relationships. It's, it's, it's used concerning how people misuse others, trying to fulfill their own desires. You see, cut off from a relationship with God, there's still a desire for relationship and even open and intimate relationship with others that we then try to fulfill in all the wrong ways. And, and with this callousness associated with that, it's like the theologian Mick Jagger said, 
I can't get no satisfaction. And I tried. And I tried. I tried. I tried. But I can't get no. You don't want to sing it with me. Okay. <laughs> For an example of this, see Ecclesiastes. The wise man Solomon looking for love in all the wrong places, right? 700 wives, 300 concubines, and still Solomon sings with Nick. I can't get no satisfaction. He tries pleasure. He tries wealth. He tries all the things that you see on TV and all the dysfunction is there. And you look at the celebrity world and they seem to have it all and yet have nothing you look at the tragedy of a life like Michael Jackson, so much creativity and yet such destruction. You look at the mess that is being played out publicly with Johnny Depp and Amber Heard and you think about that, but go look at your Facebook or Instagram feed and you see it there too. And I say this not, not that we, we, we want to judge and, and look down upon and even mock the pain that we see around us and the chasing after what they cannot find. We see a desperation there and we are the ones that know. We are the ones that know what it is that we are made for. We are the ones who know in Jesus where our fulfillment and our future and our destiny is to be found. You see, that is no longer our way. Verse 20, this is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have, he says, assuming that you've heard the truth and you've, you've, you've rested in him. Assuming that you now belong to Christ and you learned in Christ. See, there's a, there's a past tense, a present and a past tense. We lose some of that. And, and so the, what it means to put off and to being renewed and having put on, we lose some of that past tense that gets confusing. It's not that I, I have an old, and now I've added a new, and now there's two of me, and you're thinking, oh my goodness, one of you is enough. Yeah? I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not spiritually schizophrenic or, or by split personality. I'm not a Dr. Jekyll and Reverend Hyde. That's, that's not what we're talking about. I'm not even sure if I got those two right. But, but you get the sense of it. No, no, I was that old with all the rest of humanity, and he has made me new. And there's things that went with the old, and there's things that go with the new. And just like my drill sergeant said, get off those street clothes, get off those civvies, you're in the Air Force now, and put on the clothes that fit those who are now in the Air Force. And well, I'm glad that the Lord says it a lot gentler than my drill sergeant did. But there's something, too, there's a, there's a parallel there that we can certainly learn from. Things that, things that used to fit. And, and so to put off the old now is to put off the old things that went with the old self that no longer fit because I've been made new. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. And so we put off those old things. It's kind of like when somebody would say to you, oh, don't be a baby. Does that mean suddenly you've now been transported and you're eight months old again? Well, no. But you're still practicing one of the habits you learned when you were eight months old. But now, goodness, you're 45. It doesn't fit anymore. 
right? Leave the tantrum and let's, let's just work through this, right? Well, that's, that's what Paul's saying here. Stop being old. Let's put on the new because we are being renewed by the Spirit in our minds. We have been made new so that we can live new. Pastor Ryan this last week had a great example of this. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to borrow that. I'm not going to steal that because it says later not to do that. But I'm going to borrow that. Okay? Imagine, imagine a teen. And he, he, he grew up on the street. As, as, as long as he can remember, he hasn't had parents. He has been on his own. He was left. He was abandoned. He's made his own way. And, and he lives on the streets, he watches out for himself, he, he steals and takes what he needs, and he guards it very carefully. He's learned that nobody else is looking after him, he's going to have to watch out for himself. And yet, through the diligence of a social worker who, who tracks him down, who keeps tabs on him, who finds and places him with a family... This is his new home. They are on the track to adoption. They are now his guardians. He, for the first time in his ever remembrance, has his own space. He has his own room. He has his own bed. He has his own closet. And he has clothes in there. And they're not just green and blue. There's a kitchen. There's a family table. And he's invited to it. And yet... It still happens that sometimes in the middle of the night he wakes up and he doesn't remember who he is or where he is. And he puts on those old clothes from the street and he sneaks down to the kitchen and he eats what he can and he carries what he couldn't and he, and he sneaks out of the house and he goes and hides behind the garage well, his, his new parents find him there. And of course, in their own head, they're thinking, what are you doing? And maybe they say that, or maybe they realize it's not quite the time to say that. And what, what, what he needs right now more than that is, you are now ours. You belong with us. This is your place. This is your home. What we have will be yours. You're safe here. You can live here. You can trust us. We will keep you. You see, we easily wake up in the middle of the night. And we can forget who we, whose we are. And we easily, in the midst of the pressures of what feel like night, that are around us in life, we easily default back into habits from our past. But we have been made new so that we can live new. Now, that's an important direction. We do not try to put on the new so that we can be new. Any more that I can get a haircut and put on a uniform, and then that makes me get into the Air Force Base and to go wander around planes with nuclear missiles on them. That will not work. Please do not try this at home. But because we have been made new, and we now live under a new authority, and we live with new access and new belonging, and I now belonged and was given the privilege of carrying out important work in a place where I never belonged before. 
only because of the new identity that I now had been given. We have been made new so that we can and should live new. And now in verse 25, with that foundation, with that understanding, he turns to several, in fact, six specific applications. Or maybe five and one implication out of the applications. I want to go through those one verse or a couple of verses at a time, beginning of verse 25. This is what our new righteousness and holiness, according to the truth, this is what it looks like as we begin to step into it in life. Verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. In faith in Jesus, we have already put aside the primary falsehood. That falsehood that God is wrong and I am right. That my way is better than God's way. That I can lean on my own understanding instead of what God tells me to be true. We've put aside that falsehood and we've said, no God, I believe you concerning Jesus. I believe you concerning my need for Jesus to have died for my guilt, for my sin, for my shame, to pay a debt that I couldn't pay. I believe you and I believe that you accept his life given in my place. And that 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 is my acceptance before you. God, I believe you. I don't need to make my own way. You have made my way. I accept that primary truth. I reject the primary falsehood that started in the garden. You can't trust God with your future. You're going to have to trust yourself. No. I can trust myself to him. And laying aside that primary falsehood, then I can lay aside the subtle ones that cling to it. You see, God never lies. His word is trustworthy. What he says he will do. I know you've been let down in life. I know you've had promises broken. And that echoes around in you that, well, maybe I can't trust these people. Maybe I can't trust God actually fully. Maybe I'm going to believe, but I'm going to also keep my foot in my own reliances. I'm still going to be guarded in terms of trusting others. We've, we learn to be skeptical. We need to learn to trust, and we need to lean on truth. We need to, we'll, we'll experience that, and we'll do that by being in truth and being true to one another. That we will live in light together. We'll not need to deceive one another about ourselves, because we've already been accepted by God together. We don't need to pretend before Him. We don't need to pretend in front of one another. We are broken people in a broken world in desperate need of our Savior. Can others trust us? Do we speak truth? Do we truth in love as he's already described in the previous section of chapter 4? You see, there's something about people that decide they're going to be truth tellers and they're going to tell what's truth and it can be so hurtful. It can be so coarse and even abusive. Authenticity does not mean being abusive towards others. It means considering another. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. Another application is to be angry and yet do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and thus give no opportunity to the devil. The devil will love to use our anger against us. And the trick here is there's things worth being angry about. 
In fact, Jesus was angry, and some of you will use that as a justification. Look, I, I, I should be angry here because Jesus was angry. Look what Jesus did. He tipped over tables too. Okay, but again, don't try this at home. It's not necessarily the same. These two proverbial sayings, one of them comes as a direct quote out of Psalm 4 and verse 4. Be angry and do not sin. Get angry, but be angry about what angers God. And yet keep it in control. Don't let it get out of control in harmful and destructive ways. Anger is a very powerful motivator, and anger is also a very destructive emotion when it is not kept under control. Do I get angry about the things that defy God's will? Or do I get angry about the things that defy my will or my wants? Don't let the sun go down on your anger. That's actually not a quotation from the second half of Psalm 4, verse 4. It's a, it's a Greek proverb, but a Greek proverb that restates in a well-known Greek proverbial way that the Ephesians would have said, oh yeah, heard that all the time. But it expresses the thought, the Hebrew thought, out of Psalm 4, the second half of the line, which is instead of being angry and sinning, be angry and not sinning by meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. That's the second half of Psalm 4.4. Don't go to bed angry. Don't let it fester. Trust it to the Lord, not just passively, but intentionally. Don't you love the Psalms where the psalmist is angry? And he lays it all out there. He says, God, oh, God, I'm so. And it goes. And yet there's a turn typically by the end of the psalm. There's a turn even if it's, oh, God, grab a hold of them and rip their guts out. You know, even if it gets that violent, it seems. But it's a trusting God to do it instead. Lord, you'll deal with this. Lord, I can trust you with it. Don't let it fester in yourself. Trust it to the Lord. Romans 12, 19 says, Never avenge yourselves, but trust the Lord to vindicate you. It's the devil who says to you, You've got to look after yourself. You can't trust God to do it. Yes, you can. And so we will. Let me give you an application. Out of this whole, this whole anger and anger thing, what do we do with that? When you're mad at someone, especially a brother or sister in Christ, pray for them. There may be something else you'll need to do from there, but please start with praying for them. And give that some time first. If you're angry about something, you're angry about an issue, you don't know what needs Start with prayer about that thing. Start with prayer about that. That, Lord, I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. But, Lord, Lord, I need to trust you with the outcome on this. Because this, like everything else, is largely out of my control. But it's not out of yours, even if it seems like it. The things that you're angry about first start with prayer. Trust it to the Lord. Verse 28 is one of my favorite verses in all of Ephesians. That's a strange one to be a favorite, but here it is. There's so many levels that I like. This part of it's my own history, which I'll not regale you with the tales of my past thievery. But it says, let the thief no longer steal. And that one makes a lot of sense because there's the, there's the Eighth Commandment, right? Do not steal. Okay, we're going to bring the, the principles out of the law and they still apply to the Christian life and that's wonderful. Oh, be careful, you're about to miss it. Please don't make yourself a checklist here because that's not what Paul's doing. 
He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather, there's more, that's actually not in the Eighth Commandment, rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. So instead of taking what is not yours for yourself, there's that inward curvature of our souls that looks to me and myself, that is focused inwardly on me. And he says, let's straighten out that inward curvature. Instead of taking one others from others for yourself, let's, let's work with honest labor with your own hands to provide for yourself. But he goes on from there. He says, so that you may have something to share with anyone in need. You see what he's done? He's taken the thief and turned him into a philanthropist. He's taken the taker and turned him into a giver. He's not merely made the honest thief or, or, or the dishonest thief honest. He's made the dishonest thief generous and gracious. Why? Where does that come from? This is the new life in righteousness and holiness, in God-likeness, according to the truth. That, that the law doesn't say do not steal because God's just going to think about stealing. The law tells us something important about God himself and his character first. The law says don't steal because God doesn't steal. God does not take what is not his. God is not a taker. God is, rather than being merely not a taker, and being upright and honest and trustworthy, God is in fact a gracious giver, giving to us what we had no claim to. And he'd give it to any one of us who would ask and believe him for it. That's what he tells us to do. He says, you're now my children. So I invite you, come along with me in the fullness of my ways. You see, if you, if you, if you read the law and you understand the law, any of the commandments and, and onward from there, as this is a list of the stuff I'm supposed to either do or not to do, you're missing something. The law is God's revelation to tell us something about himself. And there we get to step into this new life, which is a life that is lived in the likeness of God himself as he lives his life through us. There's a bit about what I love. God takes this inward curvature of our soul, and he not only straightens it out, but he curves it the other way. He curves our soul outward because that's the way God is curved. And we saw it in Jesus. He didn't come to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for others. Jesus came to give, and so he calls us to give, and we step into knowing him and walking with him as we do. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. This is not just bad or ugly words, although part, that, that's part of it for sure. Only what is good for building up. Well, there's the contrast. The, each, of these, each of these has a, a former life and a new life that, that, that are put in contrast to each other, aren't they? Not corrupting talk that, that fit before, but now talk that is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it might give grace to those who hear. This kind of builds on the last one. Giving to others even with our words. The corrupting or corrupt there means rotten. It's expired. It's, it's past its cell date. It's most often in the New Testament used of rotted fruit. Words or talk we previously used no longer fit. They don't build up. Instead, they're like rotten apples that if left with others will spoil the rest of the fruit as well. The rot from those apples will spread to the others. It'll spoil the bond that we have together in Christ. How do you see that happen? 
Well, don't just think about ugly or vulgar words. Think about criticism, which can be so nicely said. Criticism that discourages. Maybe gossip. Let's say, let's say you were gossiping. You were talking about somebody else behind their back, but, but it never got back to them. Well, no harm, no foul, right? Actually, there's already been harm done. Because when you tell the story from one person to another about someone over there, what does that stir up in the person you're telling? It stirs up in them a judgmental criticism against the other and a viewing of themselves as more favorable or the two of you as more favorable as compared to the other. And you've already poisoned the well. You've already started the spread of the rot of judging others that separates and inciting pride in ourselves, destructive to a body that, that cares for one another in love. You know the thing that was so dangerous to the Corinthian church that Paul had to jump in as hard as it was? In Corinth, the personal criticisms about style and appearances and preferences concerning Paul as well as concerning various other followers and those that they followed. And it was dividing and splitting up the church in ways that stunted their spiritual growth. And it was hard, it was painful for Paul to wade into the middle of that and to keep going when they really didn't even want to hear from him. And yet it mattered much because their spiritual maturity together and their testimony for the gospel to others mattered on them getting past that. And so that which so easily popped up in Corinth, that, that personal criticism of style and appearance and others, the way one person does things, another person does things, please, not here. Not here. Don't let the enemy spoil the sweetness that we have together in love together for our Lord and thus for one another. Before you say something, talking about corrupting talk, before you say something, ask these three questions. First of all, is it true? We're supposed to traffic in truth, right? First of all, is it true? But just because it's true doesn't mean it's something you should say. The next question is, is it helpful? Is this going to be something that is helpful? Is this going to be something that strengthens? Is this going to be something that builds up? Is this a building thing or is this going to be a destructive thing? Is this going to be a uniting thing or a dividing thing? And sometimes there is such a thing called constructive criticism. There is sometimes the, the correction of one to another, but, but the how and also the when, the third question I want to put before you is, is it the right time? You see, there's a right time and a wrong time. Oh, if I could, if I could only remember the difference. Haven't you regretted something you said that needed to be said, but... That wasn't the moment. You blurted it out before either they or you were ready. Wait for the right time. Verse 30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. You see, what we do in engagement together, even with how we give, can, can grieve the Spirit. He sorrows. The Spirit sorrowed over the Corinthian church. I know it. The Spirit at times sorrows in my life. We can bring grief to God's Spirit that dwells within us. But you know the other side of that? You know what else it means? You can bring joy. You can cause God's Spirit to sing. 
What does that look like? When we follow our Savior, when we step into His generosity, when we step into His compassion for those that we might otherwise just ignore or distance ourselves from, when we are generous to give, when we could just as soon keep it for ourselves, when we use our words to build up another rather than using our words to seek to lift ourselves up in the eyes of others. Finally, in verse 31 and 32, let bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with malice. Instead, here's the new, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, and a reminder of what it's all based on, just as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. It's easy to resent something or someone To have that smoldering inside and unchecked, eventually we lash out in anger, we make demands, we accuse others. Rather, to be tenderhearted, to be compassionate, to try to be understanding. Where is that coming from? And is there another way I really ought to approach that? We have a cat. She's sort of a strange kitty. But she has, well, Kitty has issues, okay? But, but Kitty, Kitty had a, a, an early life that was something like that teen that I described earlier. She was a rescue kitty. She was found abandoned. Mama had been killed. Sibling had already been killed. And she alone was left. And she'd grown up from a feral mama that, that um, had probably instilled at the earliest of age, probably before her eyes were open even, the, the need to watch out. And you can't trust anybody. And so we have this kitty. And for years, she's so easily startled. She, it was so, she's so difficultly or, or seldom trusted. And yet over the years, it's been fun to see the cat, well, only with a few people, honestly, but to see her actually turn into a bit of a lap cat. And yet still seated on my lap, purring and petted, an unexpected movement, not even a loud sound, but just anything random, unexpected in the room. And all of a sudden, the claws come out, the claws dig in, and she takes off and heads for safety, wherever that is, and leaves the trail of blood behind. <laughs> it would be easy to rage at the cat when pain is involved. And yet, Kitty's got issues, and I understand that. And it helps me to have some compassion for the kitty instead of wanting to strike back at the cat who has hurt me. You know what? You have issues. Maybe not like my cat, but they're similar. I've got issues too. And we're going to have to be gentle, compassionate, tender-hearted. We're going to have to be forgiving of one another. But we've already seen how it's done. Because every time we do, we taste a little bit more that way that God in Christ has forgiven you. Do you wonder sometimes, I wish I could know a little more what his forgiveness is really all about? Well, try it out towards somebody else. And you'll taste it a little more fully. Lord, Lord, would you help us to live new? Lord, there's someone that I need to be less deceptive and more real 
Lord, there's some way that I need to release bitterness about a hurt from the past. Father, help me to be less insecure and anxious and more generous in giving with that which you've placed into my hands. Lord, might my words indeed be used to build up rather than to break. Father, I want my words, I want my works to bring joy to your spirit and not sadness. Father, help, help me, Lord, help us to extend compassion to the others around us who don't know the grace of our Lord Jesus as we. Help us, Father, even as verse 28 said, help us to give to anyone, especially this grace and compassion and forgiveness that is to be found in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.